If you're older and uh, you're thinking about your family and how hard it is to be a parent and a grandparent, uh, my favorite parenting book is the book of Genesis, not to be snarky, uh, but the book of Genesis shows you that God draws people into relationship with himself. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. And the families in Genesis are so broken, many of us would not allow them to be members of our churches. Uh, so you might want to remember that uh, as you, uh, a big part of family life is suffering by faith, trusting in God's promises when it's really hard. So Genesis is my favorite book for parenting as you get older. Um, anyway, thank you, Aubrey. It's really fun to be here with a friend and... Uh, you keep saying really nice things. He's saying those nice things because there's more to that story about the chocolate cake and the white carpet that he doesn't want me to tell you, but I'm probably going to tell you at some point. All right. Um, about, I guess about a little over a month ago, I was at home and I was engaged and Chrissy was leaving the house and she yells, Robbie, I'm going out. I'll be right back. I'm not taking my keys. Do not Lock the door when you leave. I got it, honey. Don't worry. And 15 seconds later, I walked to the blue bowl. Uh, We have a blue bowl in our house where we keep all of our keys. That's the Robbie Bowl. If I don't have one place to put my keys, I will get to our door. And so we put all of our uh, keys. That I walk out every day. I walk through the door, turn around, and I locked the door. Didn't even know it. Got in the car, drove drove to work. Uh, at the beginning of our prayer meeting, our Thursday morning prayer meeting, where I pray with uh, widows and retirees for the life of the church, uh, I get a phone call, and uh, Christy is in a little bit of panic. She has somewhere to go, and she's locked out of the house. Now, with, with the two dogs, <laughs> with our dog and our daughter's dog stuck outside the house, because that's what she was doing. She was walking the dogs. Anyway, why in the world did I lock Christy out of the house? Am I that malicious of a person? You know, let's see how we can wreck Christy's day. No, no, no. You know why I did it. It's the power of habit. Once those keys were in my hand, even though I was saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, when I walked through that door and turned around, I just did what I always do. You and I know that habits are really, really significant. We can tell ourselves, do this, but we won't do it because our habits have us in a different direction. We can tell ourselves, don't do it, but we're going to do it because we've done it for so, so long. It's so patterned in our brains, in our life, in our hearts that we just automatically do things that we've habituated into our lives. And so part of what I want to talk about this weekend with you is about starting new practices so that our eyes can be open and we can see how God's kingdom work. And particularly, I want to talk about practices that bless the poor. Uh, And I want us to become the kind of people uh, that see people on the margins uh, the way God sees them and uh, begin to imagine how God wants to include them in the life of his people. And so I want to talk about practices that match God's kingdom uh, that include uh, the poor. And so... uh, just for a minute, one more thought about uh, practices and habits. Um, you and I have been deeply discipled by our culture. Uh, even if you grew up in the church and you're fifth generation churchy, uh, you've still lived in this culture. And our culture has deep, deep practices that have shaped us and formed us. Our culture has discipled us to view ourselves in particular ways and to view our neighbors in particular ways. And we have to take account of how we have been shaped 
if we're going to continually be reshaped as God's uncommonly good people devoted to the common good of our neighbors to the glory of God. And so, if, if we think about it for a minute, imagine that you were an offensive lineman for the uh, Washington Redskins, um, and, and you have been training for that your whole life. You've done all these uh, special diets, which means you eat like crazy, and all these special workouts, and now you weigh 340 pounds, and you can run fast with all that body mass somehow for short periods of time. And you can shove other big humans around and not get knocked over by enormous humans. And you, are, you have trained and worked and worked in this direction. But then you wake up one morning, and you know what you really want to be is an Ironman triathlete. Are you going to have to learn new practices? Of course you are. You're going to have to change your diet. You're going to have to change your routine. You're going to have to get new heroes. All life, growing up, you watched big men shove each other around chasing a pigskin. Now your your new heroes ride bikes and swim and run ridiculously long uh, distances after all that. Um, And so you're going to have to have new heroes, new practices, new diet, uh, you're going to have a, a whole new regimen in your life. And so uh, since you and I have been rescued from a kingdom of darkness and transferred into a kingdom of, the, of God's son, a kingdom of love, and since that kingdom is already here and it's growing but it hasn't come in fullness yet, you and I are going to have to learn practices that fit the kingdom that we're now a member of, the kingdom that's coming we're going to have to learn to set aside some practices that fit the old kingdom from which we've been rescued. And it's complex, right? Because it's not that we left this old kingdom and we've come to this new kingdom and this kingdom is fully here. It's not like that. The, the consummated, fully perfected, glorious kingdom is coming in the future. And so we have to live these new lives, discover new practices in the present when we're, we're members of this kingdom, but the kingdom isn't fully here yet. We're members of the age to come, but that age isn't fully here yet. So it's complex. Uh, it's difficult. And this is, the Bible often talks about how this relates to a person, how we, you know, we believe, we're saved, we, we get transformed, we become sanctified. There's transformation happening in our lives. Think of like Romans 6 and 7. That can be very complex. And also, one day I'll be brought to glorious perfection. When you get to Romans 8, Paul says the whole creation is groaning waiting for humanity, God's image bearers, to be brought to that perfection. And so it's complex. It's complex on the personal level. If you believe in Jesus, you are saved. If you believe in Jesus, you are being saved. If you believe in Jesus, you will one day ultimately be brought to glorious perfection. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. And also the world we live in, this kingdom that's come, has the same pattern. The kingdom has been inaugurated. It is continuing and growing. It will be consummated. And that means if our lives feel difficult, riddled with tension, then that means we're awake. Because that's, that's who we are. There's tension inside of us, and there's tension in the world. And it requires faith, hope, and love to live like the people of God. And so today I want to look at um, some particular practices uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, First, I want to talk about how the church has typically um, addressed issues of poverty. So let me talk about that for a minute. And then I want to show you some Old Testament models uh, that can help us think of new practices today uh, to live like God's kingdom people with respect to the poor. Um, 
how about this? How many of you, how many of you guys can look up something on your phone quickly? Okay, y'all, y'all have that access here? Yeah, your preacher doesn't normally tell you to do that in the middle of a talk, but well, did, how many of you have a phone you can look something up on quickly? If you can, look up the, the job site Jobs for Life. Y'all know the group Jobs for Life out of Raleigh, North Carolina? Uh, they're Christians that are working really hard to make sure people get, find work. If you go to Jobs for Life and you do back slash um, flip the list, I'd love for you to look at that for just a minute, and I'll read you some my stats and theirs are pretty similar. <laughs> the, Urban, the Urban Institute surveyed 1,200 churches and faith-based social services, and they discovered that our spending on poverty alleviation looks like this. Now, my stats and their stats don't line up exactly, but their stats, this, these mine are over 10 years old and theirs are newer. So when we try to alleviate Poverty, we spend 33% on food, 18% on housing, 11% on handing out clothing, 8% on homelessness, trying to get people uh, into housing, 4% on health care, and 2% on substance abuse. If you live where I live, Tennessee, Tennessee and West Virginia are the states struggling the most with opioid addiction. It's destroying us. But those are mostly symptoms and not causes. So guess what percentage churches invest in employment, helping people find good work? If you're looking at flip the list, it tells you 2%. So we've gotten better. Over 10 years ago when I did the research, it was 1%. So churches are seeking to alleviate poverty in our areas and our cities, partnering with uh, NGOs, partnering with uh, community development groups, faith-based or other, other groups, government groups maybe. And 12 years ago, 10 years ago, we were investing 2% in job creation and at 1%, and now it's 2%. So that's crazy. A Duke University study said that unemployment and earnings are the key determining factors of poverty. The Brookings Institute said most people are poor in the U.S. because they either do not have work or work too few hours to move themselves and their children out of poverty. And there's a, the CEO of Gallup, Jim Clifton, said this. They did a massive research project. Six years into our global data collection effort, we may have already found the single most searing, clarifying, helpful, world-altering fact. What the world wants is a good job. That is one of the most important discoveries Gallup has ever made. Isn't that interesting? That's the CEO of Gallup. One of the most important discoveries, discoveries ever is that people want a job. How about that? Well, we knew that already. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to look with you at the gleaning laws in the Old Testament for a model of how God encourages, invites his people who know him uh, to create room and work for others. So let's look at those laws. If you will, uh, turn to Deuteronomy 24. And I'm going to begin in verse 17, but we're really going to get focused in on verse 19. But verse 17 says something that's really important. So Deuteronomy 24, beginning of verse 17. You shall not pervert the mishpat, the justice, due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment in pledge. Do not exploit people who are weak. Never exploit people in that kind of need. 
But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and Yahweh your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Here in that, in that verse 18, I want you to see something that Yahweh says to his people over and over again, like in Exodus 23, in all through Leviticus and all through Deuteronomy. And it's this. Yahweh is speaking into his people an empathy orientation to caring for the poor. In Exodus 23, he says it like this, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were slaves in Egypt. God's saying, when I found you, you were living in all kinds of bondage, and I came and I rescued you in my love and by my grace. I brought you out of Egypt, out of bondage, and brought you to myself, and I made you my very own. Now, there's probably some people in the room that can identify to that immediately. Yes, I had decades of my life that were nothing but bondage, and God powerfully turned me from a life of hopelessness and bondage to himself. Other people may have grown up uh, in, with a lot more privilege, with a lot more help, and a lot more security, but yet spiritually it's still true of all of us, right? Uh, we were born in sin, we lived lives of rebellion in one way or another, and God canceled the debts that stood against us and released us from that bondage to be his people completely, freely forgiving, forgiven and belonging to him. So here in this Deuteronomy passage, God is saying what he frequently said to his people, when you think about the poor, I want you to do it from a position of empathy because you know what it's like to be in great need and have someone come and rescue you. And so that leads to 2419. When you reap the harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you just happen to leave it behind, don't go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You're in this relationship with Yahweh. It's his promise. It's his intention to bless you. Live like he is real and present and generous, and you will experience his blessing. One way to live like God is faithful, present, and generous is to live in generosity towards those around you. When you beat, verse 20, your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you, to do this. You hear the empathy orientation before and after. I want you to remember who you were and what you were like when I found you. And so I want you to live this life that leaves profit on the ground for the poor. I want you to take stock and account for all that God has blessed you with. I want you to live like he is faithful and present and generous And when you account for all of those things that are produced in the life that he gives you, I want you leaving profits on the ground and not using it all and certainly not living beyond the means that God has graciously given you. A parallel is Leviticus 23, 22. I'll just read it to you. 
And when you reap the harvest of your land, here's the gleaning law specifically, you shall not reap your field right up to, to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. You know who I am. You know about this relationship you're in with me. And so when you have your field, I don't want you gleaning all the way to the edges. I want the box to be smaller than the edges. I want you leaving the outer boundary ungleaned, unharvested, so that the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, the poor can come and work in your fields so that they may have the dignity of work and have their needs met. So part of what I want to focus on today is how we can think of of ways to create work for others, not just give uh, extra away, not just pay bills for others, but sometimes we need to do that, but more than just giving people a little bit more money, creating work for them, which gives them the dignity, the honor of work, and allows them to participate in God's blessing quote-unquote, provide for themselves in that dignified way rather than just receive a handout. and make three points about the gleaning laws in the Old Testament. The gleaning laws provided work for and required work from the poor and the marginalized. Here's what the gleaning laws didn't do. People didn't walk up to the landowner's door and receive handouts from baskets, already picked, already harvested, ready to go. Moreover, the landowner didn't take the extra, sell it, and then get money, and then write an ancient world check uh, to uh, to the church, or to the government agency through taxing, or through giving to the nonprofit, who would then, in a very distant way, deal with those poor people. It wasn't like that. The gleaning laws provided work for and required work from the poor and the marginalized. The poor and the marginalized came to the fields and did the work themselves and walked home with the fruits of their labor. So second, gleaning laws created work and provision at the expense of the landed stewards. The gleaning laws created work and provision at the expense, not of the landowners, or you could say the landowners in quotes, the land stewards. This is a great way for Yahweh to remind his people when they lived in the land that the land was his, that they were tenants in his land, that it all belonged to him. And he had been wildly generous in giving them access to the land. And the distribution was very equitable. And every family had a stake. And the gleaning laws created work and provision at the expense of these people who were not real ultimate owners, but are the stewards of Yahweh's land. So they had to say, oh yes, When I don't glean all the way to the edges, this isn't really my field anyway. 
This is Yahweh's field. This belongs to him. As a matter of fact, I belong to him. As a matter of fact, my children belong to him. As a matter of fact, my neighbors belong to him. This is God's world. He made this world. He rescued us by his grace. He brought us to this land and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey as a gift, a blessing, a generous offering. So when the great king Yahweh, who owns this land and gives me the right to farm it, And to eat from it daily and weekly and annually. When he requires me to cut back on my personal profit, he has every right to do that. When he tells me to take account of all the benefits that's coming to me through his generosity and kindness. When he tells me to watch the margins and make sure I'm leaving work for people to do on the outside of the margins of my business. Of course, he has every right to do that. I belong to him. Whatever family, farm, or business I have, it belongs to him. Of course, he can require this of me. So thirdly, gleaning laws made each and every family, farm, business the place for economic justice. Rich and poor working together in the same fields. So I've got some, these great friends that work for the Chalmers Institute uh, in the region where I'm from. And the Chalmers Institute, that's the group that produced the book, When Helping Hurts. You may have seen or read that book. It's a great book about poverty alleviation. It's the, the, the Chalmers Center exists to help churches meet the needs of the poor. And they've produced all this curriculum, and they've given it out, and they've given conferences. They speak globally, and they speak nationally. And you know what they're finding the number one problem is with churches that want to help the poor, but are having a hard time finding traction? You know what the number one problem is? There's no proximity between the people of God and the poor. The people of God are in here, enjoying the rich abundance of God's life, and the poor are out there. On the margins, and there just isn't proximity often between local churches and the poorest members of that society. And so uh, they've just written a new curriculum called Be a Good Neighbor, <laughs> which basically tells God, pe- God's people how to live in proximity with the poor in non patronizing ways. See, that's one of the big problems. If, if the soup kitchen is the A to Z model of our care for the poor, it can be very patronizing and paternalistic. We're the people that have all the good stuff. You're the people with all the need. So as we give, we the good guys give you the bad guys stuff, our pride is increased and so is your shame. But when you have a relationship with somebody who's exceedingly poor, uh, those things change quickly. So one of my best friends who I met 18 months before I met Aubrey Spears was a guy named Ricky Horn. Ricky Horn was my friend. Um, I helped plant a church in the poorest neighborhood in Chattanooga. It's called Alton Park. When we planted that church with my friend Lerone Jennings, uh, we planted that church. Uh, the, the neighborhood was filled with government housing, project housing, the bricks. Uh, and so there were uh, housing projects all around us. The, the biggest government housing project uh, was across the street from the Bethlehem Center. And so I spent at least one day a week knocking on doors of people that lived in government housing. 
And then and the, we, the, we planted the church in this community center, and that's where all kinds of life happened. There were all kinds of programs to help people move from poverty uh, to, to something more mature, something healthier. And so that's where we were for about 18 months. Anyway, uh, one of my friends I met there was Ricky Horn. He grew up in those projects. Um, he was born with a cleft palate and a cleft lip. Uh, he never knew his dad. Um, his teenage, by, by the time he was born, his mom was about 20. His older sister was born. His mom was 15. Um, and uh, he was born into this community, this government housing project community with a cleft palate, cleft lip. And the neighbors and especially the relatives told Ricky's mom and his family that he was a curse. They just looked at his face and said, oh, he's a curse. Y'all are cursed. And that wasn't because they were like spiritual. That was just superstitious, right? You know, this is a, you must have eaten the wrong onion or something. It was very superstitious, but he's a curse. Y'all are under a curse. And so Ricky grew up with that. He also grew up with all kinds of abuse. Um, His mom had deep, deep, deep relational brokenness, intimacy brokenness. And uh, he was never given uh, affection or love. However... Uh, when his mom and her friends would come over and get high and get drunk, Ricky was one of the objects they would use for their own pleasure. So if you can imagine being Ricky Horn, you know, growing up, being told you're a curse, not knowing real affection and love, and then being mistreated like that, he was a deeply broken person. He was a crack addict for eight years, and then he met Jesus. And he became completely clean from crack addiction for about eight years. And then he got married, and things got, really wor- got, got way worse for a while. Uh, why did that happen? Why did marriage create such big problems for him? He had deep, deep intimacy brokenness. He didn't know how to give or receive love. Even though he was a believer and he was, he was growing, uh, the, the woman he married was a deeply angry and controlling person. She had her own story of deep relational intimacy brokenness. And so uh, their marriage was a, a very, very hard place. And so about a year after he got married, around the time I was meeting Aubrey in England, my friend Ricky turned back to drugs. Why did he turn back to drugs? And then it became the struggle uh, for the next 10 years of his life. And he died this past October in a hospital uh, because he basically had um, destroyed his body through decades of of misuse. Uh, Died as a believer. Um, I got to pray with him in the hospital the last three or four days of his life. When when my friend Ricky went to the hospital, around the corner from him, my dad had just had major heart surgery at a nearby hospital. Our third-born Emma had just had our first grandson. So there was, there was this three-week period where my dad, my very good friend Ricky, and my daughter and grandson were on the hospital. My grandson was born six weeks early and was in NICU. Anyway, it was crazy. Let me say that. Here's the benefit of Ricky. Two brief little things. A, he was actually our family friend. I would say, and Chrissy's heard me say this multiple times, he's one of the best friends I've ever had. He is the most empathetic person I've ever met. And so when you hear all these stories about Ricky, um, you might think, oh, great, y'all love that a guy like that. Yeah. And he was a wonderful friend to me. I'm, I'm an extrovert like Aubrey, um, and so we always seem like we're doing great. 
Um, Ricky was one of those people that could look at me and feel when I was off. And he'd be like, hey, man, what, what's up? What's going on? You're hurting. I, I, I didn't know I was hurting. He knew I was hurting. And he could lead me through it and help me understand what I was feeling. He was that kind of beautiful, beautiful friend. Another story, one of the times that he came out of a binge, uh, we found him. Uh, we brought him to our home. It was probably the third time he lived with us. Uh, my daughter Ellie, who's 17, was, I think, four, so it was 13 years ago, and he'd, he'd live with us, and he felt so dirty and so much shame because of what he'd been doing the previous months, and uh, he, he came in, he basically slept in our guest room for a, over a day, didn't want to eat. Uh, finally, I coaxed him into taking a shower. He took a shower. He took ate some food. The next morning, he woke up with us, and we were taking a family walk, and Ellie was four, and we were walking along down the street, and um, Ricky decided to walk with us. It was the slowest walk of the year. You know, he's just coming out of, you know, really, really rough stuff, and we're barely walking down the street, and here's the benefit of welcoming people like this into your home. My four-year-old daughter, who is also very people-oriented and very empathetic, she just looked up at Ricky, and she felt what he was feeling, and she just reached up and offered him her hand. He reached down and took her hand, and tears just rolled down his cheeks, and in that moment, he knew he was loved. The greatest need, he knew he was loved, he knew he was welcomed, he was accepted, these These gleaning laws were written so that the people of God who are perfectly loved and cared for by God, because God is faithful, present, and generous. These gleaning laws said to ancient Israel, hey, make room inside of your life for the sojourner, the widow, the orphan." And the poor. Now they did. They did have a tithing system, so they did send the tithe to the central office, um, and, and that's that's legit also. But this was one of the ways that they regularly cared for the poor. It's remarkable. Now you can probably think with me about the story in the Bible where the gleaning laws really shine. Can you think of it? Now there's a story. Yeah, I hear y'all saying it. I see, see you saying it. Now think about the story of Ruth for a minute and how the gleaning laws came in. And by God's law and wisdom, rescued a family. Ruth, remember it's really Naomi's story at, for, at first. And Naomi and Elimelech, they leave because of a famine. And they go to Moab. And then their sons take Moabite wives. So it's, I like to say their name. When I was in, in that neighborhood, Alton Park, I could say Malon and Chilion. Everyone's like, yeah, I know those guys. Um, those names sound really foreign to us. They didn't sound foreign at Alton Park. But anyway, um, so Malon and Chilion take, right, Orpah and Ruth as their wives, Moabite, Moabite wives. And then Elimelech dies. And Malon and Kilion die. And so what you have is this Jewish widow living in a foreign land with two foreign daughters. 
and they're Moabites. So you go back to number 22, and these are the wrong people. These are the people that are not allowed in the fellowship of God's people because they wanted God's people cursed. I love it when Ruth becomes the ancestor of the Messiah. That's an unbelievable way where the baby of the foreigner becomes the one that, that crushes the head of the enemy anyway. All right. So, so there's, there's Naomi and her two daughters. You know the story, the beautiful story how Ruth says, you know, where you go, our God go, your people, my people, your God, my God. It's a real, it's a beautiful conversion story. Like, I identify with you and your people and your God. Let's go. And so Naomi and Ruth uh, go back to some place you never heard of, Bethlehem. And they go back there. And just think about who Ruth is, right? She's the wrong ethnicity. She's the wrong religion until that moment. In the ancient world, patriarchal culture, she's the wrong gender. Now, we, now, that's put that in quotes. She's not, but that's what it felt like. She's a widow, and she's childless. She doesn't have a hope. She comes back to Naomi, and everyone's like, Naomi! She's like, mm Just call me bitter. Mara. Just call me bitter bitter. It's over for me. And as you know, as the story unfolds, uh, Naomi knows that they have this near relative Boaz and and Ruth is willing uh, to step into the system. And so what Ruth does, she meets uh, Boaz at a midnight scene of the threshing floor. Uh, She basically says, I'm willing to be with you. He says, I'm willing to take you in. I'm willing to put my my uh, wings over you. Um, this is great scene. What before she met them there, she'd gone out and worked in the fields because Boaz was a righteous man that obeyed the gleaning laws. So the sojourner who is a widow and who is poor, totally matching the description, is allowed to come and work in Boaz's field, and everyone's telling her, "Man, this woman is a hard worker." They're praising her. And so, you know how the story works. Boaz and Ruth get together. This is providing an heir for his brother's family. It's an amazing scene. The whole family is rescued because a man, Boaz, is doing righteousness and justice. He opens up his family business to the foreigner. We, we, it's, we rightfully think of Ruth as a heroine of the faith. Amen, she is. And it's wonderful that she's in the line of Jesus. This is what God's doing. He includes the Tamars and the Rahabs and the Ruths in the family that he's building. It's wonderful. But the story doesn't work if Boaz isn't a righteous and just man who says, you can come into my fields you foreign widow. You can come into my fields and work and take food home to your mother-in-law, Naomi. It doesn't work if Boaz isn't obeying the gleaning laws. What might happen in your own family life in Harrisonburg 
in the church, the incarnation, if you begin to think about this more and more, where are the places in my life? Where are the places in my business? Where are the places, where are the, where are the, what are the relational networks I have? Where can I invite people on the outside to come in on the inside? And they'll actually do good work that benefits me too, but where can I open things up and invite people in? It might be just in your own home, in your own neighborhood. Maybe you love to cut your yard, but there might be the son of a widow who could really use that 20 bucks for mowing your yard. And you have to get over that, that cultural idea that only whatever kind of people pay people to mow their yard. I don't know. It depends on where you're from. Some people are like, of course you'd do that. Other people are like, no, I can't do that. It depends on where you came from. It might just be in your home where you can give people the opportunity to come and earn some money, new, new opportunities, new jobs, whatever they are. It might be uh, in, in your church, who you hire to bring you your coffee or whatever. I guarantee you, you guys with Aubrey have thought about that a lot. It might be in your business, new opportunities to invite people in. I want to read the end of the book of Ruth, and then ask you a question, give you time uh, to go and think about, who I have two whole minutes. All right, here we go. Just, just, just for a minute, I, I, I'm a deep believer that the whole, the, the Bible tells one big unified story, one big unified unfinished story, one big unified unfinished story that involves us. And I'm absolutely convinced that the whole Bible tells the story of Jesus so you can read the whole Bible Christologically, and the whole Bible is about the people of God. So you can read the whole Bible ecclesiologically, and the whole Bible is about uh, the Son of God becoming our Savior, the people of God, and the mission of God. So you can read the whole Bible Christologically, ecclesiologically, and missiologically. But listen to what, how the book ends when Ruth goes from a complete nobody Wrong gender, wrong religion, wrong ethnicity, childless widow, to better than seven sons. And as, that, as the story comes to that climax, just see if you hear anything that makes you think of her great, 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 great grandson, our Savior, who would come. Here's the climax of the book of Ruth. It anticipates David and one even greater than David. Listen to the women So Boaz, 4.13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his, his, became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You know Obed is built on the Hebrew word eved, which means servant. This is the birth of the servant who's the Redeemer, whose name will be great in Israel, the grandfather of David, 
the great, 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 great grandfather of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we can think of ways to practice the gleaning laws in our own city, in our own homes, in our own churches, we can bear witness to the servant king, the Lord Jesus, whose name we want to be renowned, whose glory we want to be seen in our homes, in our churches, in our city. So I'm going to give you 30 minutes right now to break up into groups. In just a second, Aubrey's going to tell you how to, get, how to break up into groups, what, what groups you're going to go into. And so my one question for your group is, I think it would be interesting for you to, to focus on one of those areas. So as your group gets together, part of your time, uh, think about, hey, as a group, we want to talk about how to practice gleaning laws in our own time and culture in our homes, or do we want to think about that more at a level of business, or do we want to think about how, as a church, um, we can do that? So that's, that's one question. Uh, think about that. You can try to do all three. I don't know how far you'll get in that. You've got half an hour, and you probably have to go to the bathroom because we had breakfast. Okay, so that's one question. Now, Aubrey's going to stand up, break you into groups, and maybe give you...